you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. If you will notice in your handout that you have, you have notes. And I'm upping the ante because you have an additional page as what you've had in the past few weeks. Okay? So you got nine and a half pages of notes. Now let me tell you why. The reason why is because one of the worst things that could possibly happen, taking the time to get up, fighting Satan in whatever way you had to to get here. See, we just had revival right there in everybody's hearts. And then, to come and to worship God, to desire to do so in spirit and truth, to hear the Word, to seek to be changed by God, to draw near to Him so that He would draw near to us. And then we walk out the doors and as we meet the cold air, it all leaves. That's why I have these for you. That's why I take the time to type these up every week. So the content is not easily lost, so it's something you can go over in pieces, if you like, throughout the week. You can do it all in one big chunk, however you want to, but hopefully there is something that we're, we have going on in God's Word that will so grab your attention and maybe illuminate to your understanding maybe what you haven't seen before. So that's the reason why I go through this, is because I want to give as thorough an explanation as possible. And for something that you may have a question about, please feel free to email me or call me here. Whatever needs to happen is fine. As we, as we always start, I want to go through the top of the foundational things we've seen so far, the foundational principles that we have grasped since Genesis. And, and uh, it's kind of neat that we didn't have somebody doing prayer focus today, because I have longer to preach. That's good. You know how the Lord loves to bless that, so that's so selfish. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Number one, the Bible. What you hold right now in your hands is God's self-revelation. That is God revealing Himself to you and me. I'm amazed at how many people discredit the Bible, and when you ask the question, well, what part of it did you not like? They can't even tell you one book out of it. Because of the way they hear us talk so much, they think that Bill Gaither is one of the disciples. Okay? That's a problem we have. That's a joke. This is not going to go well this morning. All right. That's sympathy laughter. This is really not going to go well. Uh, number two, God is eternal. He's always been. He is the sovereign creator, which means sovereign means he has the right to rule. It does not mean that he meticulously controls everything. That's not the idea. Does he know everything? Absolutely he does. But not all things are under his control. He is a ruler, and he is also the creator, of which, if we are the creatures, we are all answerable to him. Notice this, all that he creates is what? Good. And the simple fact that we can identify that word tells us that we have knowledge of what is good and what is evil. Number three, we are responsible agents. All of us are accountable for what we've done. All of us. All of us will answer for it. All of us will need to give some sort of explanation or rationale as to everything that we do. God is perfect. We are not. And if we do not have a pardon that He provides for acceptance, then we're going to have to give a well-thought-out and reasoned defense as to why we should stand before Him without spot or wrinkle. We are held to a moral standard, and that standard is what He sets. The fourth one, sin originates within us. That's where it comes from. Nobody needs to teach us. We don't need to go to, to, to college and get a bachelor's in sin. We automatically have a doctorate across all levels. We automatically do what is wrong. Everybody close your eyes. Close your eyes, trust me, I'm not throwing anything. Okay? Do not, under any circumstances, think of a pink elephant. Do not. Especially on roller skates. See? You sinners. Exactly. That's the idea. When we are told not to do something, wet paint, what do you want to do? Exactly. That didn't originate with God, that originates in us. The last one. God declares someone righteous. One way. By faith alone. And here's the reason why. 
Because there is nothing righteous in us. Nothing. Therefore, anything that we try to bring to the table automatically falls short before it ever gets there. So in order for us to receive a righteousness like God's, because that's what we need in order to be in His presence. We need a righteousness like God has, a perfect righteousness. We have to receive that somehow. And we can only receive that one way, and that is by faith, by believing what has been provided for us to bring us into His presence. Nothing of ourselves, all of Him. Salvation is all of the Lord. So now here's a question. What is the grand purpose of history and existence? We think to glorify God. She got it right on the first one. What are some other things that we hear about? I mean, don't we have a lot of philosophy where people live for themselves? Right? It's all about who? It's all about me. It's all about me. In fact, if we're Christians, we would say, well, the most important thing we could ever do in history is share the gospel. Is that true? Trick question. It's not the most important thing. Is it very important? Oh, it's insanely important. No one comes to know Christ any other way than by the gospel being shared. It has to be shared. It has to. But even that falls in line with coming to the ultimate pinnacle of what it is to glorify God. And the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are set up with one thing in line. Well, you've heard about the scarlet thread through scripture, right? That ends in Christ. That's true. But there's also a golden thread that is tied to it. That goes all the way through from Genesis to Revelation and it ends with Jesus Christ being glorified in such a way as to where all dominion, rule, and authority has been given to Him, and He places all of His enemies underneath His feet to act as a footstool for Him. Notice the domination, uh, uh, the dominating mindset there. And in turn, when the 1,000 years of the kingdom of Christ on earth is done, He will turn around and He will hand all of this in glory over to His Father in heaven. And they will share in reigning throughout all of eternity. That is the goal of all existence. Some weirdo with a nuclear bomb is not going to destroy the earth. The Bible has already told us how it's all going to end. So knowing what the Scriptures have for us, the idea is for us to be able to see that that's going on. Let me read this quote to you from Charles Ryrie. It's a good one. Scripture is not man-centered as though salvation were the main theme. But it is God-centered because His glory is the center. The Bible itself clearly teaches that salvation, important and wonderful as it is, is not an end in itself, but is rather a means to the end of glorifying God. That's the idea. Now if you look at your Bibles, we're in Daniel 7. I want to show you something very good. And I, and I didn't come up with this. Of course, it's there. We can all see it. But my friend Jeremy Vance, he's a pastor of a church up in Manitowoc. Very, very wonderful guy. If you ever get a chance to listen to him or you're up that way, visit his church. Excellent guy. But he pointed this out in, a, in, in, in terms that, that I, the Lord used to bless me with it, and I want to share it with all of you. In chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, this is the thesis statement of all history. If you want to take your pen and write it in, the thesis statement of all history. Here it is. This is what God is doing all the time. Verse 13. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now who's that? It's Jesus. And he came up to the ancient of days. Who's that? God the Father. And was presented before him. Now notice that. The son approaches the father. It's in the clouds happening. And he is presented before him. And look what it says. And to him. Who's him? Jesus the son. Okay. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Or some of your translations say sovereignty. And the idea there is rulership is what was given him. The right to rule. And it says here that all the peoples, nations, 
and men of every language or men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is a what? Everlasting dominion. Pause. Does that mean that it ends? No. Now here's an interesting question. Has it started yet? No. It has not. And it will not until the world looks like it is at its worst, that there is no hope left whatsoever at the end of seven years of absolute devastation, which we call the tribulation. The last three and a half years is the great tribulation. And in doing so, this is when Jesus bursts through the sky. I love it. It's not that He pushes clouds out of the way. It's that He actually rips through the sky. Everybody get that. That's devotional. That don't make your fire burn and your wood is wet, okay? That's important. He rips through the sky, which tells you something interesting. Heaven is another dimension. Something to think about, right? When he comes back, the, the sky will roll up like a scroll. Any of you got any of those in your, in your, in your home where you pull the little shade and goes up to the top? Anybody seen that? That's what the sky is going to do, okay? This is all really cool. Here comes Jesus, right? Interesting stuff. When that happens, he will establish his kingdom on earth. All opposition will be laid to waste. And it's amazing. He will speak and people will die. Why? Because he speaks truth. And people can't handle it. Think of Jack Nicholson, right? You can't handle the truth. Amen to that. Exactly. So with that idea, he has an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What is God's ultimate goal in history? It's a kingdom. That's what he's looking to do. To set up a kingdom on earth by which he reigns. Now, this isn't odd. We've seen this promise ever since the beginning, so let's trace it real quick. Everybody put up your right hand unless you're left-handed. Then put up your right hand. Wiggle your fingers. Well, your fingers, come on, come on. Everybody participating. Even you sour people who haven't had any coffee. Good job. <laughs> Limber them up because we're flipping through, okay? Genesis 1, let's go. Go, 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 go. Mush, mush, mush. Genesis 1, here we go. I got a lot to preach and a little time to preach it. Genesis 1. See, everybody's got limber fingers. See, I messed you all up because Genesis is on the left and now you're like, oh, my warmed up hand's not doing things. There you go. Genesis 1, look at verse 26. Man, some of you weren't really warmed up at all, were you? <laughs> then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them what? Rule, or some of your translations actually say have dominion is the idea, which dominion, we get the word dominance from to dominate something let them rule over the fish of the sea over the birds of the sky over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them notice nobody else was made that way and god blessed them and god said to him be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the living thing, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Everybody see, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, fill it, rule over it. The initial creation of Adam and Eve was done for the sake of dominion. Then we have sin enter the picture, correct? Turn over to Genesis 9. Genesis chapter 9. Verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's missing? Rule. The right to rule is missing. There is no call for dominance. None. Because when it came to the moment of choosing whether to obey God, and to not eat of the tree of good and evil, 
or to fall prey to the temptation that was right before them, in doing so, they forfeited the right to rule. So notice, God's initial point in creation was to set it up in such a way as to where He shared a limited scope of rulership with you and me. He wanted us to be co-rulers alongside Him in this kingdom that He was going to set up. But because sin was much more pleasing and enticing than what God had said, the right to rule was forfeited, and now Satan holds it. We are told over and over, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this present age. He is the God of this world. He is the one who presently reigns over this sphere of influence. And we even talk about that he reigns over this world. The word cosmos actually means also world system. He rules over and has orchestrated the way that the world is set up. Now, if you want to see how that works then you'll go out and get coffee and a donut and you'll come back in for Deuteronomy because we're going to talk about that today, about what our world looks like opposed to how God would set it up. But the whole idea is you find that everything that God calls for that deals with holiness and righteousness, responsibility, accountability, moral standards, regardless of what it is, our world goes in every direction but toward God. There's many ways to heaven. No, there's many ways to hell. A lot of ways go there. In fact, all of them but one. And that way that has been paid for us to go to heaven could not be any wider than what God has made it by stretching out His arms on a cross and paving it with His blood. It's as clear as day. So a lot of people don't like that way. So notice, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. No call to have dominion. Now move over to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. I know we've covered some of this. I will never apologize for repetition. It's a great teacher. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land. Notice that, which I will show you the land. Every kingdom has to have real estate. Every kingdom has to have a place to be built. And I will make of you a great nation, there's the seed, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Go down to verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh who had appeared to him. The idea of having land in order to establish the kingdom. Israel has been promised that there will be a land that they will receive as an inheritance. And they will come into this land, and they will then set up a society that is ultimately a theocracy. God will rule as king. And if we want to know where that land is located, it is located in between Egypt and Iraq. And God has given all of it to Israel. Now again, we've talked about this before, but all those struggles that we hear about a Palestinian state and everything about the Israeli uh, Palestinian conflict, the Middle East conflict, all of those things, it can all be settled by one way. Read your Bible. God said it. That's it. That's the end of the story. So God is not only setting things in place for this kingdom to take place on earth, but He's also letting us know what the boundaries are of it. In fact, very interesting. Turn over to 15. Turn over to 15, verse 18. Chapter 15, 18. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant. He made a contract. He made an agreement with Abram saying, to your descendants, to your descendants, the Jewish people, I have given this land, and he tells you, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he goes through 19, 20, and 21, and he gives you all of the people groups that, comp that, that, that make up the extent of that land. Now, turn over to Exodus. Next book. Chapter 3. I'm still in my introduction. I'm like, oh, Lord, help us, right? Everybody just started praying real hard. Exodus 3, verse 10. This is the Lord talking to Moses. He says, Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring who? My people. Notice, personal 
possession, the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Look over at chapter 4, verse 22. Verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is what? My son, my firstborn. Which notice what you find here with the idea of my people, my son, my firstborn. We see the idea of personal possession. But also, in those times when you use the idea of my son, my firstborn, you're also talking about people that were to be heirs of which property and blessing and riches were to be passed on to. That idea is there and it's, it, it's replete throughout the Old Testament. So now we get to finally where we're going to study. Everybody turn to Numbers. We've seen in the past few weeks that the people were freed after Yahweh proved Himself to be a greater God than all the gods of Egypt that they served, they were led out because they had applied the blood that was provided for them. Death had passed over them. And now they have been led to a place, Mount Sinai, a region of Sinai, to a particular mountain named Horeb, where they received instructions. And now it's come time for them to be led forward and the promises that God has made to Abraham are going to start coming true right before their eyes. So it's a critical moment. Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, now notice he's commanding this, Send out for yourselves men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of of Israel. Now notice that. Yahweh owns it and only He can give it. It says here, You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So notice, we're not just sending anybody who will volunteer. You know, they got, well, if he gets hurt and taken out, that's okay. We're not going to miss him a lot anyway. No, it's not that guy. It is prominent men that are representatives of each one of their tribes. Now this is important because these men would already have an understanding of what responsibility was. And they're not just going to be people that kind of blindly rule over the people who have been commissioned to them. They're going to be people who are intimately aware of the needs, the struggles, and the conflicts, and the talents and offerings that everybody in their tribe can bring forward. Does everybody see how important that is? So you've got key people that have been put in place to go over into a land that they're going to conquer as spies. Now, isn't spying evil? Not in this part, it's not. James Bond, yes. Here, no. So notice, verse 3. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of Yahweh, all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. Now, let me say this real quick, because this is important for us to grasp. When we read through this narrative, and if we were to read through this in, in, a, in a way to where we put ourselves in their shoes, thinking that we're walking through this land, because of the serious situation that this is, that they're walking into, we're going to see the fatal mistake that they think that somehow the safety of their family in obeying Yahweh, the creator of all things, is two separate things. And I think this is important. We often make this mistake as we are now. Somehow we've been sold that safety of our family is the most important thing that there ever is, and it's not. The most important thing our family could ever do is obey God. Let Him take care of the safety. Let Him take care of the consequences. Let Him take care of the outcome. Let him take care of whatever is in the future because only he knows it and only he can. Our job is to be responding to his word faithfully, period. So a mistake that is often made is that somehow the utmost best thing for the family is separated from what God wants. And I'm telling you that is a lie. It never is. They are both in the same thing. By obeying God, you are doing the best possible thing you could ever do for your family. That is very important to understand. Men, take note, please. So now, verse 4 through 16, 
I'm not even going to play like I can say all those names, okay? But there are two names I want to bring to your attention. Verse 6, from the tribe of Issachar, no, not verse 6, I'm sorry, from the tribe of, yeah, verse 6, from the tribe of Judah, I read the wrong one, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Now, Caleb's name means faithful. Looking for names? Caleb's a good one. But what's interesting is, is that word is derived from the name dog. Isn't that strange? How faithful is a dog? Right, we, we have called man's what? Best friend. Never betray you for nothing. Always sticking with you. It's amazing. That's where Caleb's name comes from. That's the imagery that it, that it portrays. Caleb was like a dog, man. He'd stick with you all the time. Yeah? Oh, I did not know that. So the, the Hebrew name for dog is actually kolev, which is whole heart. It's your whole heart being involved. Awesome. An animal that loves you with its whole heart. There you go. I didn't know that. Awesome. Okay. Well, let me show you this next one too. Verse 8. And from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. Which if you look down at verse 16, these are the names of the men who Moses sent out to spy out the land. But Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Now, Hosea means salvation or deliverance, like we've seen. That salvation means to be delivered from something. But when you deal with Joshua, you're actually dealing with the Old Testament equivalent of Jesus' Hebrew name, Yeshua. And the idea is the Lord is salvation, or salvation is of the Lord, is Joshua's name. Now, I don't know about you, but I already get excited about it, right? We, we got <laughs> That's all we need. Praise the Lord. So now verse 17, when Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there into the Negev, or some of your translations might say the Negev, N-E-G-E-B, exact same place, okay, Negev, Negev, same thing. Then, go up into the hill country. Now watch this. Watch all of these things that Moses is inquiring about. Some people have said, well, by putting together a band of spies and sending them into the land there, they're not really trusting the Lord and moving forward. No, pause. Verse 1. God said, put together a delegation and go see it. They're not being unfaithful. They're being smart. What are we getting into? Anybody just get, show up on a lot and said, you know what? I like the blue car. Wrap that up for me. Let's drive it away today. Did anybody do that? No, because the blue car. You did that, Ruth? Are you serious? You didn't test drive it first? Anybody got a spare piece of paper? I want you to come see me tomorrow. Probably 11 o'clock. We'll do about an hour of counseling. And Why can't I just ask a question and all of you agree with it? <laughs> Is that too much to ask? Just go with me on this. Ah. Look at the questions that Moses asks. See what the land is like. Now stop for just a second. Thinking about just what you know from being around church and speaking Christianese for years and being in Sunday school class and all those things. What do you know about the promised land? It's often called what? A land of milk and honey. Okay? So notice that. What is the land like? See what the land is like? And whether the people who live in it are strong or weak. Whether they are few or many. In other words, what is their caliber? What is their number? You know, how many Popeyes do we have there? How many Lou Ferrignos are we going to have to face? Verse 19. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or is it bad? Is it inhabitable? Are we going to be able to survive when we get over there into it? Notice he says, And how are the cities in which they live? Are they open camps or fortifications? Is it just a bunch of guys that set up tents like a Cub Scout retreat? Or does it look like a castle? That we're going to have to think long and hard about a battle strategy in order to engage these people. Verse 20, how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Is it plentiful? Is it few? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. And it's interesting because we have a little editorial comment that's thrown in here. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. Notice this. It's the idea of Moses would have known 
if my seasons are correct of where we are, we're going to start to see the beginning of what this land could produce for us to be able to live. So while you're there, get some of it and bring it back so we'll have evidence of what you found. He says here, verse 21, So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob at Label Hamath. And when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where, the, where Ahimen, Shishai, and Telmai, the descendants of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Now, how come nobody said amen on that? Exactly. Here, let me show you why. Let me show you exactly what they're talking about. Mitch, let's bring up a map. So this, if you turn to the back of your Bible, if you have maps, you'll probably find this. The idea is that they're starting down here, okay? This is the Negev. This is where they're starting. Now, they actually received the Ten Commandments down around in here, okay? Which is Mount Hebron. It's way down in that valley there. But when they come up to the Negev here, I'm trying to stand out of everybody's way. I don't know if that's possible. Right there in the Negev, okay? And then their trip was to head up in this direction. And as they came up, they were going to come to this place right here called Hebron. Everybody see that? About three miles north of that is a place called Eshkol, which means cluster, is what the word means. And that's where they chopped down the cluster of grapes. But here's what's amazing. They traveled on up through this entire area until they went all the way as far as this point right here. Now this, at that time, excuse me, is known as the southern tip of Syria at that time. Then they turned around and came all the way back down to come back and to report. The entire trip that they took was 480 miles on foot. Twelve of them. They spent 40 days going. Now do these guys know how to travel or what? And here's the thing. Here's what I don't understand. And maybe I'm wrong. But if you're coming up this way and you get to Hebron and you say, hey man, let's cut down those grapes so we can show Moses this is what it looks like. Why didn't you get them on the way back? Why did you take them all the way up here and then come back? I don't understand. Maybe I'm wrong. Hopefully I am. And they got them on the way back and said, you know what? We can cut them down now and take them back. But that's the length that they went to. Did they have a clear understanding of everything they would be walking into? Because... If you're in the Deuteronomy class, you will know that Moses has been camping out right here, giving them their final charge before he passes away on Mount Nebo right there, and they cross over and begin taking the land. And their escapade there, they took all of this, which is about 140 miles uh, across, or or up and down, north-south, whatever you want to say. Uh, This is the area that they've taken, and they settled those three sections, and then they cross over and they dominate this section here. So they've been hanging out there. So when they come back and finally do it, and the second generation goes in, this is where they're going to come to. There's a lot going on here, geographically speaking. So now, moving back, verse 23. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, that's the one that's three miles north of Hebron, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and figs. They've been to the market, man. And notice, you've got to have a pole, probably carrying it on your shoulder, and a big, huge cluster of grapes is just dangling there. This is how good the land is. Verse 24, that place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of which the sons of Israel cut down from there. And when they had returned from spying out the land, at the end of 40 days, there it is, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the sons of Israel. In the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, also what's known as Kadesh Barnea is the idea And they brought back word with them and to all the congregation and showed the fruit of the Lamb. Now, now, now pause for just a second. Imagine that you're there waiting for the spies to come back. And you see them coming from a distance. They're returning, right? You're probably counting them, make sure they're all there. You know, Edgar didn't get left behind or whatever. Awesome, yeah. What do you think is the emotion going on here? Why? I'm excited. It's joy. Why? Why? Waiting to take the land? Why? What's your current situation? You're a wanderer. You live in the desert. 
You got sand in your sandals. Literally, right? Ah, finally a house. We're going to live somewhere. I don't have to keep packing up my stuff anymore. Maybe the Lord will let us finally set up the tabernacle to stay, right? That's probably what our evil hearts were thinking. Good grief. But think about it. I'm finally going to have a place. Anybody ever been without a place for a while? Boy, it felt real good when you got in that place, didn't it? There was relief, a weight gone off your shoulders. Not only that, but think about even more. And I thought it was interesting. Maxine used the word joy. Very beautiful word. God's going to do what he said. God is going to do exactly what he said. And we, of all people, and he's been talking to over the years, we, of all people, are going to be privy to see his promises come true. Does everybody remember when Jesus talked to the disciples and he said, many people have waited to see this day that you're seeing now, and they didn't see it. What a privileged people at this time. So God's word is going to be fulfilled right before their eyes. Great, what do you got? Whoa, that's a big cluster of grapes. Right? Notice the next part here, verse 27. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, why is that important? Because the descendants of Anak are giants. They are giants at that time. That's not far conceivable or anything like that. It's not inconceivable to think that because we know of Goliath appearing later. So they actually have these genetic mutations of giants that lived in that land. Yeah, big strong guys. They're all there in this land. That's what we've got. Now here's the thing. Are they lying? Nobody's telling a lie. Everything is true. In fact, they're answering all the questions that Moses said when you go there. Find out these things. They're checking off the list. Moses, here's exactly what you asked for. And here's what we found. And notice it says here, verse 29, they say, Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. Where's that? That's down south in that part. Moving on, they say, uh, let's see here. And the Hittites and Jebusites, the Jebusites actually lived in the area that was later known as Jerusalem. It says here they're in the hill, uh, and the Amorites are living in the hill country. The Amorites were kind of spread out everywhere. The Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. So they were not only along the Jordan River, but possibly along the Dead Sea down at the bottom there, but could also be that they were over on the edge by the Mediterranean Sea, what we normally call the Gaza Strip now. So notice they're coming back and they're saying, if you want to be able to map out a battle plan and how we need to go and where these people are located and what exactly they have, let's draw it up on a big parchment here and I can tell you where everybody is. Is it a is it a truthful report completely truthful everything has been satisfied that moses asked for notice we don't have any problems but notice what it says here then caleb quieted the people before moses now stop does everybody notice that between verse 29 and 30 we don't have a reaction verse we don't have like 29b why do you think that caleb had to quiet everybody in fact the word means hush he hushed everybody. Why? They might be excited about it. Apprehensive, fearful. Think about it. Think about it for just a second. Put yourself there. Imagine how dry it is. Imagine that if you took your, you took your feet out of the sandals, you could feel the, the, the sand in your toes. Imagine you're looking out. It's arid. It's hot. You've got these guys showing up, and man, they're holding what almost looks like gold to you. Because they are this massive, luscious cluster of grapes. You could feed your whole family for three months on it and not even blink an eye. Yeah, it's amazing. Land flowing with milk and honey. God's been telling us the truth this whole time. There's a lot of people. A lot of opposition. And they're big. And they're strong. And they don't just have tents. They have massive, thick walls. And if you know anything about how they built walls then, if they built them 30 feet high, they built them probably between 20 and 30 feet thick so that even if you scaled the top, you had to run a distance before you could get into the city. That way they could pick you off on the top if they didn't get you going up. People were very smart about how they designed it. And notice immediately, oh, this, this fruit looks amazing. It was highs and lows like you've probably never known. This sounds fantastic. I can't wait. 
What? Notice, Caleb steps up. And here's the interesting thing. Caleb is an amazing leader. He immediately sees discouragement come across the people. And think about what you're dealing with here. How many Israelites do we have? Two million! Two million people! Can you imagine a wave of disappointment going over two million people at one time? Can you imagine standing there and the reports going out and you see this taking place? And it's just trickling back like a wave. And all of a sudden, as far as your eye can see, people are... (sighs) Caleb holds up his hand, everybody. Quiet. And notice what he says. I love it. He doesn't waste a minute. He doesn't mince words. Look what he says. We should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. How come Caleb's not sad? Notice that. I don't know what you guys are basing your emotions on, but mine are on God's promises. And here's what God said. God said this is going to happen. Now the best thing we can do is do what God said. Don't lose hope. Don't let your emotions get in the driver's seat. Don't let it throw you off the track. Trust God's Word. Notice what he says here. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. Notice what Caleb exhibits. When the direction is unclear, he gives clear direction. That's a good leadership lesson right there. When the direction seems to be unclear, he gives clear direction. Notice that the other ten spies have allowed their present circumstances to eclipse the eternal Word of God. Very dangerous. And please, I mean, don't act like this don't hit home. Too often our present circumstances eclipse the eternal promises of God and we get so focused on what's going on in the here and now that we stop looking up where Christ is seated. Already victorious over death, hell, and the grave waiting to receive us unto Himself. And we miss that because of whatever is presently blinding us from those promises. Notice it's a critical, pivotal moment in their history. And so it says here, verse 32, So they gave out to the sons of Israel a what? Bad report, which tells you it is intentional. He gave a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the who? The Nephilim is the word. The Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Now this is what's strange. The Nephilim are brought up here. The Nephilim are the results of demons cohabitating with human women back in Genesis chapter 6 and breeding this super race that was under demonic control. Then the flood comes in. In fact, they were one of the main reasons why the flood came in and destroyed everything because the hereditary lines had been so distorted in this situation. It was evil like we had never seen before. And all these arguments of people say, well, that couldn't have happened, that couldn't have happened. Read the verses they used to prove that. It never says that it couldn't happen. It is something that is totally possible. And so the flood comes in and wipes out all of that existence except for eight people. And the question is, well, if the Nephilim died in the flood, how in the world did they get on the other side of the flood? Which tells me that what these guys are doing, because they know their Genesis history, is they are digging up the ancient boogeyman, and they are swaying the people saying, it's like at this time, oh my gosh, well that's something we don't even talk to our kids about because it's so terrifying and we don't want to scare them to death. Notice that they are using tactics in order to sway the people away from one thing, obedience. All the chatter and all the peer pressure coming down on them. So what happens? What's that? Fake news. Let's not make this political. Good grief. 14.1. Here's the response. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried 
And the people wept that night. Which gives you the sense that it was all night sobbing. God's going to fulfill His promises. Isn't He going to set up this kingdom? Aren't we finally going to have a place to live? He's been promising this the whole time. And now all this is there. And if we walk into this, we're just going to get killed. Verse 2, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, now watch this. Watch their responses. This is an emotional response that has thrown the truth of God's Word out the window. This is you and I in real life. Okay, watch this. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Do you see what they're saying? We should have just died in bondage. That would have been better than right now. How about the next one? Or would that we have died in the wilderness? We should have died traveling on the way here instead of being faced with this. Is it dramatic? It's highly dramatic, but let's be honest. It's not unreasonable, is it? We've all gotten to a point where we are forsaking life because of current situations. We've thought of despair and let despair overcome us instead of looking to the clear light that God provides. Notice it says here, verse 3, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? How come, get this, how come He set us free and let us out and gave us holy and righteous instruction just to bring us here and kill us? Why did He lead us out here to kill us? Do you realize that we think more like that about God than what we want to recognize sometimes? Why is God bringing all these horrible things on us? Is that God? No. God loves His kids unconditionally. He never pays us back according to our sins and He will spank our rear ends when we are involved in habitual sin. He has no problem. But He's not leading us graciously out to a place and setting us free to kill us. That's not God. Their God consciousness is out the window. It is. But we can't talk about that. Because I don't have enough time. Unless we want to skip Sunday school. Okay. Yeah, no. I need donuts, Pastor. All right. Notice the next one. Our wives and our little ones. Uh Uh-oh. Now it got close to home, didn't it? But what about the children? Moses, the children. Right? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. We try to go up against these people, they're going to kill us and take our wives and kids. That's what's going to happen here. Pause. You think God's going to let that happen? They did. Notice that. It's real easy to judge them, isn't it? 4,000 years on the other side of it, looking back, you stupid people, don't you know what God says? And we got 66 bucks. They didn't. All they had was the word of the Lord. Now remember, when they were receiving the Ten Commandments, didn't they hear His voice audibly? So that was meant to leave an impression. And why was it? It was meant to put the fear of God in them so that they would not sin. This is when your doctrine becomes reality. What you really believe about God is put to the forefront when pressure is applied. And this is it. Notice it says here, our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Let's go back into slavery. It's far better than what God has in my life. You know how many times new Christians have felt like that? You know how many times mature Christians have felt like that? Well, if I was just lost, this would be so much easier. I actually saw an interview with somebody who said, yeah, I don't really follow God anymore because I realize that life is much easier without Him. I thought, brother, it's going to be really interesting to see what it looks like after life. How dangerous. We flippantly walk on this dangerous ground sometimes like it doesn't matter. Now here's what I love. Verse 4. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Let's overthrow God's chosen leader and let's start a mutiny. That's the answer. Revolt. Revolution. That's the answer. How many times do we hear that today? All the time. That's our solution. Does it ever work? Yeah, California's actually lobbying to have a new California. A state within a state. We ain't got that many stars. That's all I got to say. Moving on. So notice verse 5. I love it. In true solid leadership fashion, Moses and Aaron take the platform and they fall on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Notice that Moses doesn't stand up. He doesn't, you know pull out some belt and start knocking heads and whipping people. You bunch of lousy 
no good Israelites, what's wrong with y'all man? Notice he doesn't act like that at all. You know what's interesting? He's probably, get this, he's probably so overcome because he has poured so much of himself into fostering obedience in the people that he falls down upon the Lord and said, Lord, if anything's going to be done, you've got to do it. Help. 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 I love it. Verse 6. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. Why would you do that? It's anguish. It's disgust. It's, it's ripping. It's saying, I can't believe the situation. It's abhorrent of what we're involved in. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel. The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. Now they state something incredible. Don't miss it. Now is when all the pins need to be clicking into place. If the Lord is pleased with us, if Yahweh is pleased with the decision that we're taking here in our trust of Him, notice this, then He will bring us into the land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Wouldn't they have to give the land anyway? I mean, they promised it. No. The land is promised to Israel. Didn't say which generation. Abraham didn't receive it as an inheritance in his generation. Neither did Isaac, neither did Jacob. Neither did anybody during Joseph's time. Will the inheritance of the land happen? Yes. Will it be Jews who inherit it? Yes. Is it contingent upon their obedience? Yes. And there will be a generation at some point that will be faithful that the Lord will bring into the land to occupy it fully. But notice here, if, see, Joshua and Caleb know, if the Lord is pleased with us, that's what matters. Are we being pleasing to the Lord? Verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord, with, uh, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Sound good? It's two against two million. How do you think they're going to work out? Now, those are, not, those are not good odds. Exactly. Verse 10. But all the congregation said, you know what? They may have something here. God may have been telling the truth the whole time and we were acting foolishly. You know what, guys? Let's repent and trust the Lord. What'd they say? Stone them. Let me ask you something. What has to happen in your life for you to have the willingness to want to pick up a rock and club somebody in the head enough times to where their life goes out from them? What has to happen to drive a human being to that point? Well, demon possession, maybe. But here's the thing. Or, yeah, despair. There's no other hope. And notice, what are Caleb and Joshua guilty of? When everybody was losing their minds, we stood up and we told the truth. What is the response with the carnal heart whenever truth is injected? Kill them. Isn't that the reason why they wanted Jesus dead? Notice it's no different. The things that He is speaking, they're leading us in a direction that is so righteous we have to look at ourselves and confess just how wrong and messed up we are. Gosh, it's humbling. So instead of being humbled, I would rather in pride take up a rock and slay somebody. Those are some serious emotions that want to drive someone to shed blood. I love the hope in this passage. Then, great word, right? I praise God for the word then. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. To all the sons. Then the Lord came down. He condescended Himself right in the midst of everyone. Now, because of time, I'm not going to be able to read, but let me sum up what happens. He speaks and discusses with Moses, what is wrong with these people? How about if I just wipe them all out, Moses, and start over with you? Wait a second, Lord. If you did that, the Egyptians would hear of it. They know about your covenant. They know about your promise. And what they'll say is, is that Yahweh was not able to bring them in and fulfill His promise. We can't have your name defamed amongst the people. So skipping down, verse 20. 
So the Lord said, Yahweh said, I've pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live. Now here's the point. This is the chief end of all history. All the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. That is their goal as a nation. That they will give him glory and all the earth will be filled with his glory. Verse 22, Surely all men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my what? Voice, a rejection of God's word is the point. It says here, Shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. You will not inherit the promise. You have disqualified yourself from inheritance because of your rebellion, because your refusal to trust, because of, one word, unbelief. Now here's what I like. Look at verse 23, or sorry, 24. But my servant Caleb, pay attention church, because he had a different spirit, which the word there means another spirit, something different from what the people were exercising at this moment, and has followed me fully. There's your underlining moment. There's your highlighters right there, right? because he has a different spirit, because he's thinking differently about me, and because out of all things that could have happened, what he did was he followed me fully. Look what it says. I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Now here's the sad part. Verse 25, here's where we'll end. You have notes for much, much more than what we were able to cover today, and it's okay. You can read through those through the week. I'm sure you'll have questions about some things I've written in there. Now the, uh, now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys. Turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Why is that such a tragic verse? We were standing on the brink and all we needed to say was, Yes, God, whatever Your Word says, we believe it will do it. And we could have walked into and watched the Lord fight as a mighty warrior, obeying Him and trusting Him to hand all these things over to our hands. And regardless of how big the walls are, they were torn down because the Lord can take care of it and hand all this over to us. They're on the brink. And as they looked over into that and the Lord said, no, because of your unfaithfulness, because of your rebellion, because of your unbelief, turn around and go back. Now, if we had a map of what was down below, of what they had to return to, where they initially received the Ten Commandments, there's nowhere to go. In fact, in some of your maps, when it talks about the route of the Israelites, whenever they were in the wilderness, you sometimes see loops and swoops. We're running in circles. That whole idea of just walking in circles, a figure of speech we use. What a terrible way to live their lives. And we know what the judgment is, don't we? All of you 20 years and on who were in unbelief, you will die. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness. It's interesting. It wasn't the case for Joshua and Caleb. Caleb was of another spirit that followed God fully. Let me ask you a question. And I think it's important. It needs to be said. Where are the Caleb's today? Where are the Caleb's in the church? Where are the Caleb's when everybody in society is pointing in a different direction that stands up and says, you know what? God's word stands. Everybody fall in line. Where are the men who step up to the plate and say, we're not going to be swayed by what we see. We're going to walk by faith. Where is that caliber of man today in the church? I miss him wherever he is. Where are the types of the, the, the type of Caleb, the type of men that women want to marry instead of had to marry? It's like settling for if you want to get political, Kevin, it's like settling for the candidate that you had to vote for somebody. It's the lesser of two evils, right? Too many marriages are handled that way. Because there's not enough upstanding men who when you look at them, you know their feet are firmly planted on the Word of God. 
Let me ask you this. Do you think that the threat that two million people were going to stone him stopped him from trusting in God? No, we know that's true because he says Caleb's different. He's going to inherit. Y'all, I'm sure God said that, are going to die. From 20 years on, you will fall in the wilderness. They won't bury you. They'll just keep walking. Your body will lie in the sand and they will keep going until finally the last person falls and we can do what we always needed to do. Why 40 days? Or why 40 years? Because it was 40 days of scoping out the land. It was 40 days of testimony of evidence that everything that God said is true. They had enough evidence. They had a good report to give. They knew that God's Word was sure. There was no other way. There was no other successful, victorious solution in the whole thing. And only a small fraction of men were willing to stand up and say, yes, follow God. Regardless of anything else that goes on. Regardless of how pressuring the situation gets. Regardless of how sad life looks. Follow God fully. Here's the amazing thing. Caleb and Joshua lived. Joshua took over and led the people in. When they got into that land, I can't remember what's written in Joshua, but Caleb said, hey, where's my inheritance? I'm ready to settle. You know the sad thing? This is important to think about. The sad thing is that regardless of how faithful Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua were, they still had to accompany the disobedient people in the wilderness for 40 years. The unbelief of others cost them and their families dearly. But what God called them to in their ministry was to be faithful in seeing His Word through to the end. Church, I don't know about you, but I would love if we were made up of Caleb's. In fact, that's the whole idea of what it is to be holy in the Scriptures, to be different, to be set apart. I'm so tired of all these new modes of Christianity and all these new things, all these new fads that people are into in Christianity. And you don't need to look further than your Christian bookstore to find out what's being advertised as the new big thing. Somehow we've gotten all caught up in Christian books and not enough in the Word of God. And the problem that we end up suffering in that is we'll chase a trail until it dies. How many people were on the train for the prayer of Jabez? See, nobody wants to raise their hand. Why? Because it's shameful. It's one of the worst, most distorted, jacked up, sounding misinterpretations of Scripture I've ever seen in life, and the church bought it. Air fresh. No discernment. We're so easily caught off track off guard when all we need to do is stick to God's Word all the time. That's a precedent we need to send here now. This church. This church needs to be faithful to God's Word at all costs. Husbands, faithfulness in your marriage in all aspects. I don't care what it is. Wives, faithfulness to your husbands. I don't care what it is. Because God's Word matters and God's Word defines the truth of the situation. Whatever solution we're coming up with is one thing, evil. It's evil. In fact, God calls them an evil congregation. Stiff-necked, hard-hearted. Can't afford to be that way. It's God's Word or nothing. We've got to come to to that point. If you haven't, I pray that you do today. Pray that you read the rest of us and it impacts you in such a way as to where you can't even see straight for two days. God is always telling the truth all the time. And the best possible, safest, greatest, bestest way that we can ever do anything is to be in the center of His Word, His will. Period. Period. Pray with me, please. God, please give us this conviction that Your Word is truth. It alone. It alone tells us the truth about everything and father develop in us and help us lord as parents to develop our children into people like caleb and joshua who hold fast to your word at all costs who are disgusted by things that are sinful 
about people who operate apart from you that are just breaking lives, destroying relationships, bringing shame upon your name. God, let us stand firm on your truth and if the world stones us, let them stone us well, Lord. To be the only claim to any sort of victory they think they have. God, you have redeemed us fully and you are faithful. Help us, Lord, to hold fast to you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.